Thanks for downloading this show from PC One. Before we get rolling, here's a word from one of the folks who helped bring you this podcast. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. If you think that your payment system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from a customer's wallet to yours, think again. Braintree. Rethink payments. Learn more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. This is Forbes Sports Money on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Mike Ozanian. This show is all about the business of sports. My guest today is Chad Lewis of Fitch Ratings. Chad, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thank you. So what is it exactly you do over there at Fitch? I know you crunch a lot of numbers and you work with a lot of sports. But beyond that, tell me exactly what it is that's going on. Sure. So I'm a uh, senior director at Fitch Ratings. I've been there for close to 15 years now. I uh, have the, the luxury of covering our, our sports sector. Uh, so that, that really covers everything from the league-wide borrowing facilities uh, for the National Football League, Major League Baseball, NBA, and NHL. Uh, these are big facilities that were created by the league really to facilitate access to the capital markets for their individual teams. Uh, so around 20 teams borrow in these facilities uh, in each one of the leagues. Uh, you know, they borrow for cash flow reasons, they're revolvers with the banks, and they also have fixed notes outstanding, um, you know, whether a team opts to, you know, uh, renew a suite level or build a training facility, they have access to uh, capital through these league-wide borrowing facilities. We also rate debt uh, associated with, with franchises. Uh, so if a team elects not to borrow through the league uh, or has done an acquisition financing outside of the league, we could assign a debt rating to that debt. Uh, and then really the lion's share of what we do is on the arena and stadium side. Um, you know, stadiums across the U.S., uh, a little bit into Europe on the soccer side, and then some one-off transactions like the USTA's National Tennis Center. Uh, so what we do is we, we assign credit ratings, right? We, we basically tell investors, uh, you know, the, the likelihood that they're going to get paid back on a full and timely basis uh, based on the terms of the debt. So, um, you know, if they're borrowing debt on a stadium that goes out 20 years, we're assigning a, a rating to them. Um, you know, again, in the full spectrum from from AAA down to single C, you know, based on the credit quality of that facility um, over the next 20 years. So what do you have, like 100 guys there, 50? I mean, this sounds, I mean, this is I'm looking at the stadium building boom, the arena building boom for sports over the last 10, 15 years. It's been enormous. I mean, just now just talking baseball because it's baseball season. The Atlanta Braves just opened a new stadium. Uh, the Texas Rangers are working on a new ballpark. Uh, and then you've got all this stuff happening, you know, in the area of stadiums, right? The Cubs just did a bunch of real estate development outside of Wrigley. The San Francisco Giants are going to do the same thing. I think that's uh, is that AT and T Park mm-hmm. out AT&T, there. Yeah. Um, how big is the team? Uh, so I lead up the team. We have about three analysts that that work with me. Uh, so if you think about, you know, the new issue pipeline. So you mentioned Atlanta. Uh, on the Brave side, the Falcons also uh, finance the stadium that's opening this year uh, recently. And then the pipeline is, you know, kind of these three or four big deals uh, throughout the year. And then you have the one-off transactions with the rehab facilities or a Cub situation where they're adding to their, their surrounding area. Um, but, you know, I mean, so each one of the analysts kind of has their, their, you know, 15 to 20 deals that they're responsible for and keeping tag, tabs on them and, uh, you know, making sure that they're 
re-signing suites and uh, re-signing sponsorships uh, as expected. So, all right. So it's not nearly as big as I thought. So you actually have to do work. I just, you know, I just pictured you sitting back in a big leather chair somewhere and doling it out to a staff of 50. I just want to make sure you're actually doing work. And, and watching a lot of, uh, you know, Sports Center and other <laughs> uh, Fox, uh, you know, sports. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's interesting. So, so you mentioned the Braves, um, you know, one and, and kind of the ancillary development that these teams are really starting to look at. Uh, the Cubs is another great example of, you know, what can we do to engage the fan, whether it's an hour before the game, uh, you know, five minutes before the first pitch, uh, during the game, and then after the game. Um, you know, a lot of these facilities, you know, the old uh, Fenway outside, you had, you had Yawkey Way, right? When I was a kid, you know, growing up, you would go there and you'd get a, you know, a sausage and a hat. You know, they've closed that in. You know, the, the Red Sox have taken over that area and have really created this, you know, pregame environment that attracts fans, you know, prior to the game. Uh, so as we think about, you know, the future of sports and engaging that fan from, you know, the morning of a game through the last pitch and, and post game, uh, these teams are really starting to, st- to, to think strategically um, about what they can do to engage those fans. As, as you look at baseball and uh, the credit ratings and, and the debt and so forth, um, I would imagine one of the reasons, because as a sport overall, uh, certainly the way I've looked at it, it's really grown it's gotten stronger, uh, meaning teams have making more money. Uh, you don't have the number of teams, let's say, like 15 or 20 years ago where a lot of teams were losing money. Th- th- those days are gone. Um, why is it that teams outside of arenas actually or, or their ballparks need to borrow money? Is it anything to do with the seasonality, you know, baseball going six months and when they collect ticket fees for season tickets and that sort of stuff? Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, you know, you kind of have this revolving facility notion, right? So I'm collecting tickets when, when games start in April through, uh, you know, September, or if you're going to the playoffs into October, I have, uh, you know, general and administrative staff that are full-time employees. I have my scouting staff that I'm paying through the winter as they're down, you know, scouting uh, players. Um, you know, the, the offices and all of the other elements to, to running a business, you know, you're not necessarily having those cash flows, you know, come in through those months. So I think you have this, you know, these, these bank lines that are outstanding that teams, you know, rely on heavily uh, to finance their operations when they're not collecting tickets or sponsorships and other things like that. And then you just have the longer term financing associated with longer term assets, you know, so whether it's, you know, building a new facility or, um, if you've built a facility in 10 years from now, you need to rehab the suites, you know, borrowing for a long term, um, you know, um, you know, uh, construction project is, is obviously something that they rely on heavily because uh, they don't necessarily have, you know, a couple hundred million dollars around just to build, uh, you know, a new training facility or rehab, you know, certain elements of their stadium. You know, a lot of people or most of the people I know that are involved in credit ratings, you know, they do things like monitor new utilities or, you know, a new steel factory or something like you get to do sports. Okay, how did you step into this? Yeah, no, it's um, so under our larger project finance umbrella, uh, we we do have my my colleagues who, uh, you know, do rate the energies industrials and the toll roads and the airports of the world. Um, But it's, it's under a larger project finance umbrella. So if you think about, you know, what goes into building a stadium or an arena, you know, the construction element to it, the long term rehab. Uh, the operating uh, element of it, you know, you can draw some parallels uh, to an airport, toll road, seaport, or an energy and industrial project. Um, you know, the different element is that it's it's uh, it's revenues being generated by fans going to games versus uh, you know going to an airport and flying. At the end of the day, though, you're still buying a hot dog at the airport, and there there's some analysis that goes into that. You go to a baseball game, and uh, 
you know, you're, you're buying a hot dog there. So, you know, drawing some of those conclusions, while not apples to apples, I recognize that. Um, you know, there are some of those discretionary elements of, you know, the leisure element of air travel or, or surface transportation, things like that. Um, but do I get knocked down by my colleagues for uh, going to uh, put a hard hat on for a, a new stadium? Yes, of course. And deservedly so, I might add. Deservedly so. Those poor utility credit raters. Um, all right. So paint the picture for us, if you will, please. How has the credit rating of Major League Baseball evolved over the past several years? And, and what's gone into uh, how you may or may not have changed that rating over the years? Yeah. Um, and I think this goes, you know, across our portfolio of rating and ratings compared to some of the other industries. It's been a, um, an extremely stable business. Um, if you think about how sports have evolved or, you know, to your point earlier, teams 10, 15 years ago were losing a lot of money. Uh, the economics of baseball have really changed. A lot of that is through the collective bargaining agreement uh, and, and changes that have been there, you know, made there that really change the foundation of how Major League Baseball is run. Um, for instance, you know, enhanced revenue sharing that has been implemented over the past you know, couple of CBAs, which is really making you know, smaller market teams more competitive with large market teams. Going back you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was you know, the bigger market teams that were really you know, at the top of the standings, pretty much on an annual basis, you really had that, that little guy fighting to, to, to stay alive. With revenue sharing in Major League Baseball now, you're starting to see a lot of those smaller cities be more competitive. Uh, you had the Cleveland Indians in the, in the World Series last year. You've had the uh, Kansas City Royals recently, you know, smaller market clubs that aren't generating as much money in the local market being competitive. You know, the other element is obviously the, the explosion in TV contracts over the past you know, 10, 15 years, both at the league level, uh, where we've seen significant renewals. Their last renewal was over 100%, and really at the local level. So keep in mind, Major League Baseball has both the share of uh, league-level TV contracts and local media contracts. You've really seen an explosion on the local media side as well. A lot of other uh, non-sports businesses and industries during the recession, you saw their credit rating drop. And, and what that essentially means is it becomes more costly for them to borrow. You didn't see that in, in Major League Baseball. Is that primarily due to the fact that their chief sources of revenue and therefore you know, cash flow, as you touched on, the TV deals, which are normally at least five years, if not longer, uh, suite rentals, uh, stadium sponsorships, is that their long term as well? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things that we think about when we're rating a sports transaction is what percentage of COI, contractually obligated income. Uh, it really takes out the potential volatility. Um, you know, baseball, for, for all of the you know, positives on the aggregate attendance, they also have the ability to have some pretty volatile uh, you know, individual team attendance numbers. Uh, so if you get you know, late in the season in August, team's not doing well, you can see you know, levels fall off pretty significantly. So the more contractually obligated income you have, uh, you know, obviously makes our life much more easier. Um, but, you know, the, the renewals of those uh, have, have been a really positive story. Um, you know, so I mentioned the TV, but also these longer term, you know, suite contracts, sponsorship contracts. It's it's real eyeballs. It's, uh, you know, the, the advertisers, you know, want those eyeballs and uh, they continue to see the value in those, uh, you know, sponsorships that they have at the in-game experience and on TV. Roughly speaking, we've seen uh, the local TV deals, which are generally with regional sports networks. So, you know, in New York, the Yankees are on the S network. The Mets are on SNY. Uh, Comcast and Fox also have a host of other regional sports networks all over the country. 
Um, those deals have been increasing, I don't know, somewhere between two to two and a half times, let's say, over the past few years. Uh, have the renewals for sponsorships and uh, even suites, what type of renewal rates have those been? Because the, the economy has not been great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And listen, it, little, it varies a little bit by sport, and it also varies by market. Um, I think you, you know, you're no, no surprise, right? I mean, the, the NFL and, and some of those stronger markets have seen very strong renewals, um, while some of the, you know, the smaller MLB, uh, you know, facilities that we're familiar with, um, have had a little bit more difficulty, uh, you know, renewing those suites on a long-term basis, um, at higher price points. So I think the demand is still there, but pricing becomes more of an issue. Um, you know, one of the other things that we're seeing at arenas is really those end zone suites being a more of a difficult sell. So when you think about an average Major League Baseball stadium, you know, I mean, the suites are pretty much following the, the line of, of all of the seats, right? I mean, there's not really going to be a bad suite. The, the end zone suites at, at arenas have become more and more of a difficult sell. Uh, so how are arenas adapting to that, right? They're, ma- they're turning those into to clubs uh, that just becomes a different product, right? So instead of uh, a suite that only has, you know, 10 or 15 people, you're creating a new, um, you know, massive lounge area that maybe has, you know, 200 exclusive memberships. You know, it's a different targeted audience. So maybe they're targeting a 25 to 35-year-old uh, individual who's looking for more of a social setting, um, you know, that they can engage with other fans versus a little bit more of an isolated, um, you know, environment. So, again, the renewals have been positive. It's a little bit of a, a market-by-market analysis, um, but generally what we've seen across the leagues that they've been able to uh, exceed CPI on the renewals, but certainly not seeing the explosion uh, of a doubling of um, you know, suites or, or anything like that like we've seen on the media side. Yeah, and I, and I take it on the media side, part of that is too because there's more and more competition also from other platforms. Everybody wants to stream their content right now with this TV everywhere type uh, model, you know, the TV deals they sold to the networks, which you mentioned for more than twice what they were in the previous deal, the networks got the right for the streaming rights to those. So, you know, that, that adds a lot of eyeballs and adds a lot of value. So as we paint the picture of Major League Baseball today, what are the credit ratings you give baseball? Sure. So we rate, um, as I mentioned earlier, a big league-wide borrowing facility that has both an, a bank element and long-term notes, uh, and, that, and that's rated A. So to put that in context, uh, we have an NFL rating at their league-wide borrowing facility that is also rated A. You know, not to get into all the specifics of it, but um, you know, leverage is a big factor there. And then we rate uh, the NBA's league-wide borrowing facility at A-. So all the leagues are in the A category. You dig a little deeper into some of the specifics on the leverage metrics and debt service coverage ratios, and there's some finer detail that separates them. You know, to expand on that a little bit and to put that into a little bit more context, um, the media element is obviously very important to what we do, right? So we rate Disney in the A category. We have uh, News Corp, NBC, some of these other large Comcast, um, all in the investment grade categories, you know, ranging from the triple B up, up until the A category. So when you think about, you know, some of the entertainment aspects of these leagues, they do align, you know, with some of our other, you know, major network ratings. Bringing it to current event, okay, you know, obviously the Florida Marlins are for sale. Jeffrey Loria is selling the team. And just going by, you know, what's been uh, in the media about it, the price is going to be well over a billion dollars, supposedly, if they raise the money, the the potential buyers, which is the Derek Jeter, uh, Jeb Bush group. Why would somebody here, – here's, here's a team that, again, this is all public. You know, they're losing a lot of money. 
They have a sizable amount of debt. They're in, I believe, the bottom third of the league in attendance or close to it. I think they have one of the lowest local TV deals in baseball. How does it get to be a team like that is potentially worth over a billion dollars? Yeah, it's a great question. And, um, you know, I think you can draw some conclusions to, you know, going back to the Clippers sale and Clippers sold for $2 billion, right? There are a limited number of these assets, right? So sometimes the traditional uh, financial metrics don't always make sense uh, when you see a, a sale of a team. Um, you know, one of the, the key contributing factors here is going to be the renewal of the local media contract. As you mentioned, it's one of the lowest in the leagues. You know, even in some of the smaller markets that have renewed over the last couple of years, you're seeing massive renewals. Pittsburgh, you know, some of these other smaller markets that have seen significant increases. So I'm assuming that as these individuals are thinking about the purchase price, they're looking into saying, okay, uh, you know, XYZ City just renewed their local media contract for X amount. Um, so that's some value that we're building into this. And, and listen, you know, is there something that they see at the franchise level that they can turn around, you know, make Marlins baseball more attractive to a local crowd, start to generate, you know, higher attendance levels, which translates into, you know, better renewals of sweet sponsorships, you know, more concession revenues, things like that. Is there something fundamentally that they see that they can really impact that, that team? And, and listen, don't forget, I mean, the Marlins have won two World Series, right? Um, you know, it's going back, you know, over tw you know, 15, 20 years ago now. Um, but you also have to remember, there, there's, just, there's only so many Major League Baseball teams out there. Uh, and there, there's some value that will always be associated with that. And when you think about the future of the game, the game's not going away. Um, you know, what does that mean for future renewals of the national TV contracts and then also, also the local that I mentioned? And what about what you touched on earlier? We were talking about some of the teams that have developed the real estate around them. You know, I, they park. One of the things that was supposedly going to make the Marlins a successful franchise was the new Marlins Park was built into an area that you know uh, has a very a large Cuban population. They were going to be big fans of the team. They were going to build you know restaurants and stuff that that seems to have never happened. Um, in your view, why didn't that happen, and, and is there still potential there for that to happen? Yeah, it's tough to comment on you know why it didn't happen, but but certainly on the potential side for sure. Um, you look at what the Braves are doing, right? The Braves moved from downtown Atlanta to north of the city. They realized that the majority of their season ticket holders were north of the city. They wanted to provide a, a stadium that had better accessibility and was closer than going downtown. They developed this whole area, which will be known as the battery, right, which goes, again, to engaging fans before the, the game, during the game, and after the game. Uh, you know, so the area around Marlin Stadium, I would, I would agree, is ripe for development. Um, you know, the more and more, you know, you can engage that fan early on, knowing that they have a home viewing option, um, or if they're going to, you know, go to a game but they want to have dinner before, um, the more that you can attract those fans for all of the ancillary, you know, entertainment options before getting them in the stadium is, is, is only going to be upside for this. Uh, on the downside, some people have pointed to the fact that the uh, Marlins have backloaded a lot of their player contracts. In other words, in the latter years of the contracts, the players get paid substantially more than they did in the early years. Uh, and the uh, owner of the team, Loria, some people think he signed Stanton, their star outfielder, to this huge contract that he thinking he would back out, and he didn't. And that brings me to my next question is, in terms of player salaries, 
and we're talking about the finances of, of baseball and how you pers- uh, use them and look at them to do your credit ratings. The fans out there want to know, are, have player salaries peaked? You know, is Stanton a sign of maybe pl- if, since he didn't opt out that, you know, just maybe it's not going to – salaries aren't going to grow by leaps and bounds like they have been? It's a great question. And um, listen, you still can, you, you're seeing some massive renewals in, in TV contracts. You know, what does the future hold? It's, it's really going to be how individual teams see a certain player that has established themselves as a big hitter or, or a pitcher if they're really looking to, you know, fill out a, a squad and really make a run for a championship. Um, you know, what's the value associated with that? You know, there have been some some examples in the past where, where players that were prime stars during their 20s didn't pan out into their 30s. But I think only as revenues continue to grow, you're going to continue to see these superstar contracts continue to, to push the limit. Yeah, I think the Mets are still paying Bobby Bonilla like $2 million a year, if I'm not mistaken, in terms of one that didn't work. But anyway, uh, we're baseball fans at heart, you and I. That's right. You know what? So – you know, in your opinion, what are some of the deals that, you know, are, have been really good or some of the ones that have not been good? So, yeah, I, um, as I was thinking about this, and this is a little bit more of, uh, you know, Chad Lewis, the fan, not, not necessarily Chad Lewis, the, uh, the rating agency. Um, you know, I go back to um, Kevin Brown. This is going back to the, the late 90s. Uh, so this was actually the first pitcher to sign a, a, TV, or a, a contract over $100 million dollars. Um, when he went out to L.A. And, uh, you know, a deal that just never really panned out, uh, you know, injuries. Um, and, and just in, in my opinion, as I saw baseball during that period with so many positives going on, you know, this was the first contract that went over $100 million. And, you know, you just really saw that fizzle out pretty quickly. Um, listen, there have been a lot of contracts out there where you saw a player really playing in his prime during his 20s um, go to a different city and just not really have it pan out. Um, you know, you're even seeing it with, listen, Albert Pujols is probably a, a first ballot hall of famer. Um, but having some struggles after leaving the Cardinals, um, you know, I think there's been a, a number of other players that have, you know, been in a, at a team, been in an organization where they just, no pun intended, hit the ball out of the park, right? And, and we're doing everything so well, engaging with the community, um, went somewhere else and, and didn't have that luck. Um, you know, I, I think there, there have been a couple of big pitchers as well. Uh, sitting here in New York, Carl Pavano, right? We can all go back. Mr. Uh, MRI. Mr. MRI. Um, I forget how many actual games he, he started in those four or five years, but um, it wasn't that many. Um, you know, even A.J. Burnett, right? I mean, A.J. Burnett had a great career before coming over to the Yankees, uh, won the World Series in his first year there, and then had a couple seasons that really just fizzled out. They ended up trading him. Um, but I think, you know, with pitchers, there's this, there's this bigger risk, right? I mean, you know, a player gets injured, you know, maybe uh, or, or doesn't become as successful as a field player. They can become a designated hitter. Uh, they can, you know, come in late in the game to pinch hit. But, but pitchers, there's definitely this sensitivity around, you know, if, if, if you get injured uh, and you got to sit out, uh, it becomes a bigger liability. Okay, very good point. I would agree. But if I'm not mistaken, if you look at like the 10 highest Major League Baseball players, I don't know, eight of them, I think, are pitchers. Listen, pitching is still a fundamental aspect of, of winning. Uh, you look at what, you know, Clayton Kershaw has done for the, the Dodgers, right? He's such a pivotal player uh, for that team. Um, and, and pitching is still huge. I think owners are still 
willing to take that risk uh, to, to pay a, a, a pitcher, you know, big time dollars um, for what they can do to impact a game on a, on a regular basis. You think about a, a, a batter that's getting up there and, you know, it, it could potentially be once every three innings versus having a pitcher that can really control the game from the beginning and the value associated with that. All right. Well, I got to push you a little bit more to see if this spending trend is going to continue. Just last season, granted, one season, you know, does not a trend make. But for 2016, I'm doing this off the top of my head, so my numbers may not be precise. I want to say league-wide revenue went up something like maybe 7 or 8%, and player costs, player spending went up about half of that. Uh, if I hear you correctly, you're telling me that's more of an aberration. Yeah, I mean, listen, some of that's also going to be with the timing of, of player contracts, right, and renewals associated with that. So are you seeing some of these bigger ones come up in years where, you know, you might have a higher top-line revenue growth versus some of the, you know, growth in expenses? You know, the longer-term trend has been, um, you know, that player costs have been ho- hovering around, you know, 50 to 57% of, of total league revenues. Uh, so as the league has had tremendous growth in their revenues over the last decade, uh, you're seeing player salaries really keep, keep pace with that. Um, and, I, and I think, listen, it, it's going to continue to grow as, as league revenues grow. And just because uh, I'm a Yankee fan and this show is always all about me, uh, let's go to my team as, as an example. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, for years it was f- so frustrating because they'd seem like they'd try to bring in, you know, one player after another with the hope that maybe he just had one year or two years left and, you know, they could just, you know, make the playoffs and make another run at the World Series. Now, you know, this season – it's not the case. You know, they have a core young players here. Forget about whether you're rooting for the Yankees or not, but when you look at a team and, and what it could be valued at and, and how it could be rated in terms of lending, does the cast of players actually matter? Of course, of course. Um, you know, obviously, listen, you, wanna, you always want to fall back on the fundamentals, right? You never want to have, uh, you know, one player risk or, or uh, you know, a core group of players as, as a risk, right? Um, you know, I think there's some some, and, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, baseball is unique that if you get into August and you're competitive, you're going to be selling out your stadium. If you're not competitive, you're going to have a lot of empty seats. Um, you know, from a rating agency perspective, we obviously want to see the longer term trends, right? So, so whether or not the Yankees or the Mets are making it into the playoffs on an annual basis, are they continuing to sell those seats? Um, are people still going? In, in late August, if they're you know flirting with the playoffs or if they've been out of the playoffs for a month, um, but you always have the the analysis of our players making a difference on the positive side, but that core fan base is always going to be there no matter what. Listen, I think the Yankees um, have a long history of acquiring you know big big names uh, in the free agency market, taking a little bit of a different approach now, starting to build that core up like we saw you know almost 15, 20 years ago now with with Jeter and Mariano and, and the rest of that supporting cast. Um, you know, going back to those fundamentals, we've seen it work in, in other teams. Um, and as you think about, you know, some of the other elements of the collective bargaining agreement, right, going above the competitive balance tax that MLB has, uh, it's becoming more and more cost prohibitive to go above that tax. So our team's starting to rethink how do we build our squad? Are we building a farm team? Are we you know, drafting you know, better picks and, and continuing to develop those picks uh, versus really approaching you know, the free agency market to build you know, a team in, in the current year? Uh, so it's a little bit of a different you know, team-by-team analysis. What, what we want to do at the end of the day um, 
is, is make sure that an individual player hasn't driven up you know, revenues and then we're looking to rate something only because that one player is there. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Everybody loves honey glazed carrots, a great side dish for your springtime celebration and a delicious compliment to a sweet, bright Moscato. Your Bloody Mary bar will be the talk of brunch with the vodka I'm stocking. Pile those toppings sky high. Serving lamb this season? Try it with a bold Cabernet from the trendy Paso Robles region. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Here's an interesting fact for you. There are nearly one million new books published in the U.S. alone every year. One million. So if you like to read, how do you choose what you're going to read? Well, that's where Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews comes in. You see, Kirkus has been one of the top book review publications for over 80 years. They do a deep dive on thousands of titles every year, including interviewing best-selling authors and telling you what might be the hot new release before everyone else knows. So figure out what your next read is going to be. Download Fully Booked right now on the Podcast One app at Apple Podcasts or at PodcastOne.com. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. Are you aware of the phenomenon of social spending? Using a service like Venmo, people can, for example, split the cost of a night out or send a birthday gift or just connect with friends through a shared economy. It's a new way of looking at spending. Currently in limited release, with just a couple lines of code, Braintree lets your business accept Venmo. It's another example of the opportunities that open up when you rethink payments. Braintree. Rethink payments. Find out more at BraintreePayments.com slash Forbes. You mentioned uh, the new collective bargaining agreement uh, between the owners and the players that began with 2017. Um, When when you look at some of these players and and, and what they get paid and the fact that you've had some small market teams either win the World Series or compete, the Royals, I believe it was just two seasons ago, uh, could that sort of be a headwind to player salaries? I'm thinking of a guy like, I don't know, who's the big name that could come out in, in a couple of years? Bryce Harper maybe, Bryce right? Harper. He's Everyone's talking about. If you're sitting there and you're, you're thinking about whether or not to get Bryce Harper, and now you say, well, gee, you know, the Royals, they did it you know, with a pretty modest payroll, and do I really want to pony up all that money for Bryce Harper? Is, is the thinking changing? I think it is, um, you know, and – it also becomes a timing issue, right? You know, how hungry are you for something in that given season? You know, if you have a, a team that has been, you know, consistently in the playoffs, but you're looking for just a little bit more something to, to push the team a little bit, um, you know, certainly acquiring a big name star for a bunch of money, especially if they've been with the team for a long time. And you know that that individual is going to get a big salary from their existing team. And if you just want to come in because you feel that you need to fill that spot with that one player, and that's what you really feel is the last key to a successful season, listen, those contracts are going to be out there. But is there this fundamental shift? I would say yes. Um, I think you're, you're seeing it now that you can create a core um, group of players. You know, you get them gelling. You get them playing together. You build that camaraderie. Uh, and that's really been a, a, a solid formula for a number of these small market teams over the last couple of years. Yeah, and I'm even looking at some of the bigger market teams and how it might relate to what you do is looking at their finances and, and rating their debt and so forth. When the Ricketts family bought the Cubs, okay, they hadn't won the World Series in about 3 million years, 
He paid a you know a lot of money for it. I think including the share of the regional sports network and Wrigley Field, it was like eight hundred and fifty million dollars or something like that. And the son of a gun, you know, the town thought he'd be a savior, but this guy chopped payroll. You know, he didn't try to bring in the big stars. The team tanked, and you know, he said, "Be patient, be patient." You know, I know what I'm gonna do. And and he did it along the grounds of building with younger players from the farm system. They ended up having one of the highest rated uh, farm systems in, in all of minor league baseball. Lo and behold, they win the World Series. It seems to me a little bit like the Astros are trying to follow that model after Crane bought the team. I don't know, maybe it was five years ago, something like that. You know, he was uh, uh, really. Uh, smashed in the press because he cut the payroll and yet you know they were making all this money his tv deal fell apart that they had the regional sports network and they seem to be following along the footsteps of the cubs you know they have a playoff caliber team a young team um maybe this is sort of the new model now yeah and listen we all know cubs fans are very patient uh <laughs> they, they they waited a long time and obviously with the ricketts family coming in you know the, the other interesting fact about the cubs they basically have you know little if any correlation to their win-loss record if you look back at the history of the cubs over the last you know 25 30 years uh you know they're, they're, they're selling out their stadium whether or not they were you know approaching the the playoffs or if they were sitting here in august and nobody was uh you know even thinking they would be in the playoffs it's a really unique asset um you know wrigley's obviously you know listen there's wrigley there's there's lambo there's fenway there's a couple of these unique uh experiences for the average fan um but listen you're always going to be exposed to those risks of um you know, a manager not being able to pull together a young group of, of, of players, um, you know, a couple of pl- players that, you know, you're always subject to injuries, right? So maybe you have a core group, um, you know, you're heading into the summer, you have a player that gets injured, and it just it puts a little ripple into the team. But I think clearly, I mean, if you, you know, you, you've seen, and this goes back to Oakland and, 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 you know, Moneyball many years ago, you know, building up that core group of young players, you know, bringing them together, you know, really creating that, um, you know, environment that is just positive. And uh, listen, it, it can take time. It's not going to happen overnight. We saw it took the Cubs a couple of years. Um, you know, Houston might be going after the same model, but that approach is not going to happen overnight where we have seen that, you know, acquiring a big name can certainly make a change uh, in your team in a, in, a, in a very short period of time. Yeah, and, and you know, you've, t- you've used the uh, word timing a, a couple of times, and I'm just thinking as it relates to, you know, the multi-year deals they have in terms of leasing suites to corporations or corporate sponsors at the stadium. I imagine you have to be careful so that, you know, as you go through a process, if you decide that you're going to have a low payroll for a few years so you could build up your farm system and bring in younger players, you want to at least make that message clear to your sponsors, to your suite, you know, to those leasing your suite. So they say, hey, look, this is our plan. You know, we, we have a model here and, uh, you know, you mentioned the Marlins having won two World, two World Series. And after both of those, you know, uh, the first one was with Wayne Huizanga when he owned the team in 97. And then uh, I think it was 2002 or 2003 with uh, Jeff Lurie. They purged the payroll, you know. And, and some feel they never really recovered from that in terms of what the brand of the team meant to the local community, to the sponsors, and to the fans. Yeah. Listen, branding is everything these days. We, we've seen what's happened uh, in, in, in the airlines over the past two weeks, right? I mean, you can um, – are people still going to fly United? Are people still going to fly Delta? Sure. Um, sports can be, you know, different, though. I mean, you know, to your point, I mean, the Marlins had, had two World Series, but yet they're, they're drawing 5,000 fans on, on an annual basis. Um, 
you know, can a new owner come in and turn that around? I mean, you're, you're seeing it across the league where, you know, even teams that aren't performing well, you're still attracting fans. Um, but it, but it's, a, it's a fine line. Um, you know, the, the, the ripple effects as you go into, you know, renewals with a, a name or, you know, a Budweiser, a pouring partner or a local airline, that's your, that's your airline sponsor. You know, if, if they view it as the owner is not engaging with the community, is not doing anything to be proactive about putting a winning team on the field, um, has made poor decisions uh, on the field, off the field, all of those things are going to flow into, you know, the long-term value for a team. Um, and, and it can definitely get hurt. I, I still don't believe you only have three or four guys on your team there crunching all these numbers. And I, and I know you're looking at numbers and, and, and ratios and percent changes. But do you ever look at the brand and consider that in terms of for a credit rating, whether it be the brand of Major League Baseball or the brand of a specific team? A hundred percent. So I know that you guys do valuations. We, we don't, you know, in, internally do valuations. We do like to look at actual market sales. Um, so one of the fundamentals we think about is, you know, worst case scenario. Uh, if you look back at the average um, you know, sales over the last 10 years of Major League Baseball, the NFL, whatever. Um, take the average of those and let's assume like a big time fire sale. You know, we're not saying that this is a, a reasonable scenario, but if you had to take a significant discount to that, is there enough money in that sale to recoup the debt that's outstanding against that franchise? That is something that we go through. Um, you know, we're not valuation experts. Uh, we rely more on actual market sales uh, as a proxy for what a team could be sold for. Um, but then you just have these th- these questions out there on sports teams. What's a very wealthy, high net individual willing to pay for a very scarce trophy asset? Uh, and, and that really can't play into any type of financial metrics because sometimes they are just sold at, at levels that don't necessarily make sense from a traditional perspective. Um, you know, it's something that we struggle with when you continue to see these asset values continue to grow, um, most of the time in excess of, of CPI. And I think there's a lot of reasons, you know, you can make that argument. Uh, but certainly when we're tasked with thinking about, you know, what's the valuation of a team and things like that, I think, I think we'd like to look at what's actually been sold in the market as a proxy. When you look at the brand of Major League Baseball and sort of the perception by the public, uh, by corporate sponsors and so forth, by the media world, how does the brand stack up to the other three major professional sports leagues, the NFL, the NBA, and the NHL? Yeah, listen, I think there's, there's a lot of things. I mean, MLB um, you know, continues to you know, be that sport throughout the summer where people are willing to go to on a Tuesday night outside, have a hot dog and beer. There will always be that notion associated with Major League Baseball. Um, you know, some of the criticisms over the years is the, the length of game. Um, you know, as we start to think about you know, all the different entertainment and, and devices that are in our face on a daily basis. You know, how does the length of the game really affect fans and the next generation in particular, right? Um, you know, we've, we have avid, loyal Major League Baseball fans right now that have been around for a long time and have grown up through a great era of Major League Baseball. Um, how does that continue to, um, you know, grow with millennials who we all know um, like to have everything on a real-time basis, you know, and, and if you think about an average Major League Baseball game being a little over three hours, um, that engagement aspect is is going to be something that's going to have to continue to develop over time. I think, listen, it's something that all of the sports struggle with. 
um, you know, getting fans in, thinking about, okay, how do we engage the fans during commercials because the, the, the television element is so important and we need to allow our sponsors that time to, to sponsor during the, the timeouts. But we also don't want to ha- have those stale times during the in-game experience. Um, so listen, I think the brand is, is holding up very well um, across the other leagues. I think they, they are all doing a lot of positive things. Um, but the engaging of the fan, again, from an hour before the game, through the game, is is a large hill, right? I mean, you, you, you are constantly you know, getting updates on your phone. You want to be uh, engaging with fans. And it's really about, you know, how can the leagues continue to promote their game while also engaging those fans? Well, you know, you brought up another pet peeve of mine. You talk about the demographics of Major League Baseball. For the past several years, all I ever read is this survey says, you know, the average age of a Major League Baseball fan is 163 years old. You know, baseball's, you know, <laughs> dying. You know, the average age of a baseball fan, you know, is, is 75 years old. And, you know, it's three times as old as, you know, the audience that marketers care about. Or the only people that watch Major League Baseball are 85-year-old white men that live in, you know, the rich suburbs. You know, yet I keep seeing attendance trending up. It doesn't go up every single year, but the trend is still up. Last year, if I'm not mistaken, on the regional sports network, baseball was the only sport that did not see a decrease. It went up. I hate these polls. You know, it's why I love guys like you that look at numbers. (laughs) I mean, the numbers tell me that the demographics and the brand of baseball is still very strong. Listen, you know, you can go down to the the youth level, right? I mean, ESPN still has the Little League World Series, and it is engaging – Um, The youth game is still very important. You know, the other element is the the game outside of the U.S., right? You look at the diversity of players in Major League Baseball, and not just today, but looking over the last 10, 15, 20 years. um, You know, drawing out of the Caribbean, you know, Mexico, you're having players come in from from all over the world. Um, I think that some of the trends are true. Some of the data is is tough to get your hands around. Um, You know, is, is the average age trending a little bit higher than some of the other leagues? Yes. Um, but does that still mean that they're losing attendance on an annual basis? No. Even during the downturn, they had a, a year of around 3% uh, in 2008, 2009, and then another 2%. Since then, they, they continue to see, I mean, over 72, 73 million people a year go to see a baseball game. I mean, those are pretty staggering numbers, right? So for all of the hype out there with, uh, you know, declining, uh, you know, youth participation and an average age, um, there's still a very core baseball fan out there. And, you know, we haven't seen a dramatic fall off in those numbers. You mentioned something a few minutes ago when you talked about the luxury tax. Uh, can you just please explain to our listeners exactly what the luxury tax is and how it may have changed or may not have changed between the previous collective bargaining agreement between the owners and players and the one that began in 2017? Sure. So, um, you know, NFL has a hard salary cap um, where they set out a, a predefined floor and ceiling. Um, Major League Baseball has a little bit more of a, a hybrid where they set out a competitive balance tax, which under the current collective bargaining agreement, they set out thresholds for the next five years, um, which they basically pinpoint a number. Um, they've increased over the last collective bargaining agreement. I forget the actual numbers off the top of my head. I think they're around 189 going up around 10 million each year for the next four or five years, rough numbers. Um, so teams, you know, larger market teams that want to go out and, and buy these big free agents can go above that competitive balance tax. 
uh, there becomes a, a tax associated with that, right? So for a certain threshold above that competitive balance tax, you're paying essentially into the Major League Baseball Central Fund that is redistributed out to all other clubs. That tax becomes more and more cost prohibitive as you go up certain thresholds above those predetermined levels. And then you also have the re- repeat um, you know, payer tax. So if you go above it one year, you know, you get hit with a tax that goes into the central fund. If you do it the following year, that tax increases. Uh, so it's, it's really Major League Baseball, the owners being cognizant of the fact that competitive balance uh, is very important to, to fan interest over the longer term. And, you know, what what is the league doing to really drive competitive balance, making sure that you don't just have a couple of franchises every year that are in the playoffs, but you're really you know, giving a team you know more of a fair share to be competitive with the larger market teams if their local economics are far superior to the smaller market teams. Uh, so that's that's kind of the you know, the high level around the you know, competitive balance tax. NBA has a similar tax uh, where you go above the predetermined threshold. You're paying, you know, 50 cents in the dollar for the first five million. The next five million above that, you're paying dollar for dollar in there. So, you know, you still have these larger market teams that have different economics versus the smaller market teams that can go out and, and spend. But it's becoming more and more cost prohibitive. And we've seen those changes get, you know, more and more cost prohibitive on the teams over the last couple of collective bargaining agreements. I guess when I'm looking at it is it's sometimes it could be hard to tell whether or not it works. And I mean it in this sense, and then I'd like to hear your opinion on this. The Dodgers were bought for a record $2 billion, you know, excluding the, the nearby land. And I believe they've been one of the big offenders of the luxury tax. Their payroll's been er- very high, so they've had to pay a significant fine every year. But at the same time, they're trying to sort of rebuild a franchise that was struggling, you know, towards the end for various reasons. You know, the whole sale from the court because of the divorce he was going through was messy. So they were trying to reestablish that brand, get a good team. So they were spending a lot of money. And on the one hand, you know, you could applaud them for that, saying, you know, this is great. On the other hand, they're sort of being punished for it. Uh, you know, and you could bring an anecdote of anything to take the side of anything. And my point really is to say. As an example, overall, in your view, uh, has the competitive balance tax done what Major League Baseball wanted it to do? 100%. Um, if you look back, um, and actually I was at a <clears throat> MLB uh, industry event where they showed a chart of if you, if you break down the, the 30 teams by, in, into quintiles, right? So the, the first you know, uh, uh, six teams, if you look at... 15 years ago, 20 years ago, the number of those bottom six teams on a payroll basis, um, were they making the playoffs? Were they making it to the second round? Were they making it to the World Series? You basically saw no fifth percentile 15, 20 years ago. They just, it would happen, you know, once every couple of years, one team would get hot and they would, you know, they'd have a great story. As you look at that chart, and, and it's tough to describe over, over radio, but um, you know, the more and more fourth and fifth percentile teams that have smaller payrolls making it into the playoffs you know, or even into the wild card that you didn't see years ago, making it into the second round. And then as, as we talked about, you know, Indians and the Royals the last couple of years, you know, making a full run, um, I would argue that the competitive balance tax has done what it, what it intended to do. You know, are you going to have some of these bigger market teams that are, um, you know, out there because they have the economics that they can go out and spend, you know, players? Um, that's also, you know, enhancing some of the revenue sharing elements. But 
I think, listen, it, the, the competitive balance, if you look at one of the reasons the NFL has been so popular for so long, it really goes back to any given Sunday. And, I mean, that's a whole different, you know, structural, you know, uh, foundation with the NFL with all national TV contracts, hard salary cap. But the, the elements that have been incorporated into MLB over the last couple of collective bargaining agreements have really driven that competitive balance. And, you know, sort of the sister to the luxury tax is the revenue sharing, which we've touched on, which I have to say, reading was never my forte, which is why I got into journalism. But, you know, <laughs> I, and, I, and I've, I read the last collective bargaining agreement. You know, it was, to me, it was like reading the insurance book in, in, or the tax code when you took that course in college. You know, I read it 15 times. My head was spinning around. But as I understood it, essentially what happened or what happens with revenue sharing is that every team throws 34% of their revenue into a pot that is after subtracting out their local stadium expenses. And then that then gets divided equally. But then you have the supplemental pool. So at the end of the day, you really have, roughly speaking, almost half of local revenues being shared. Okay. It's a little bit like sausage being made, right? Thank you. Yeah, that describes my explanation perfectly. Uh, Number one, am I more or less explaining it correctly? And, and two, what is your take in terms of whether or not that's been effective? Because sometimes we read reports that it's working great. As you pointed out, you have more competition now. Some of the small market teams are competing to make the playoffs. On the other hand, you hear gripes. You know, some owners are saying, well, they're, they're taking all this money from revenue sharing, but they're not investing it in the team. You know, they're, they're not putting it into payroll. Right. Listen, it, it's it's a fine line. I mean, you have uh, a situation that, hey, maybe a, a, a smaller market team has not been as uh, proactive with um, you know building their local revenues, and then they're getting this big check. And oh, by the way, I'm only fielding a team uh, for a thirty million dollar payroll. So really, you're paying me just to have a, a franchise in Major League Baseball, and I'm not really doing anything to um, you know advance that franchise. I think that's been one of the criticisms out there. At the end of the day. You, you have this element of your local market also being of value because of the team that's playing there, right? And maybe you're not capturing all of that um, in that market because the economics aren't as strong. Um, you know, you can obviously charge more for tickets for a Yankees game than you can for a, a smaller market, uh, Cleveland, Detroit, things like that. So is there something with the value there that makes sense to redistribute some of that money is the is the percentage uh, that's been you know uh, determined the right percentage? There, there's always going to be you know both sides of the owners that will argue it's good for them, it's it's bad for the other one. Um, but as you think about providing that rev- supplemental revenue uh, and just the revenue sharing in general, it, it is for the most part helping franchises become more competitive. Which again comes back to this whole idea of a competitive landscape and really making all 30 teams competitive on an annual basis. And my understanding, even though the full collective bargaining agreement, I, I was going to say, isn't available, at least I haven't seen it yet, but from what I've read about it is it does do a couple things to kind of force teams to, to, uh, to make the revenue sharing more fair. So, for example, one of the complaints has been for years that the Oakland A's, even though they play in one of the bigger markets, they get a tremendous amount of money from revenue sharing, over $30 million dollars yet they haven't really put it into their roster. So they kind of, given how the formula has been changed, they're going to sort of be weaned off over the length of this next collective bargaining agreement. I've heard some other, you know, the way the formula has been tweaked, 
some other teams will be affected, you know, maybe the Marlins and some others. The bottom line being is the way the system is, you know, you're not going to have a situation like you have now where the Yankees and Mets play 10 miles from each other, yet the Yankees pay, you know, seven times more in revenue sharing than the Mets. Is my understanding of this correct? And and do you view it as something that's positive? Yeah. And and listen, I mean, I think there's a bigger issue out in Oakland with with their stadium situation. Um, You know, we all know the Raiders moved because it was difficult for them to find a solution. Um, yeah, we, I just want to say, right, they've both been playing in the same antiquated stadium, right? Exactly. I don't even know what it's called anymore. Um, it's had the name changed so many times. It's a public building, and it's I think it's like was the oldest one in the NFL or baseball. Yes. But anyway, go ahead. And, and largely considered the worst NFL stadium uh, out there, and that's not just my opinion, but I think the opinion of most. Um, so when, when you think about you know some of the, the, the positive revenue stories of a lot of teams in, in Major League Baseball, the, the Oakland Stadium situation has been, you know, difficult to really gener- generate the same amount of local, uh, you know, stadium revenues that a lot of these other, um, you know, facilities have been able to. So, you know, it, it's, it's difficult to, you know, pinpoint whether or not, you know, isolating out a couple of teams that have bigger issues going on in the collective bargaining agreement as it relates to revenue sharing um, is, is the right way or not. But it's something that I think it's kind of a case-by-case analysis that they've looked at and there's a, there's a reason behind you know why they've been singled out before i let you go i want to ask you you know sometimes from time to time i should say we hear people talk about expansion in in baseball um and i have to say i started watching baseball when there were 12 teams so uh but montreal's been brought up they used to have a team uh i it seemed to me at the time the demise it was they were drawing well but i think then you had the strike and they left and they became the nationals mm-hmm. Um, Portland's been brought up. There have been some other markets. Do the finances of the league, in your opinion, possibly support expansion? Yeah, and, you know, it, it, it's a difficult question, right, because I think you come at it from a lot of different angles. Um, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, Canada, I mean, you look at the number of NHL teams, uh, the, the Blue Jays have been, you know, in good years. They have great fan support, like a lot of other teams when they're not playing well. There's a little bit of an issue. Expansion becomes difficult, right? You think about you don't want to um, expand into a market that you haven't fully fully tested or or you're uncertain about. Um, you know, you're seeing MLS expand very rapidly right now. Seems like the NFL ha- is is pretty stable at 32 teams. It seems to make sense uh, with the AFC, NFC. You know, 16 teams. It all works pretty nicely. Um, you know, could could there be another team? I think you know certainly there are some cities that would you know overwhelmingly support a major league baseball team uh it's tough for me to you know comment on whether or not that's something that will happen in the next uh you know foreseeable future and there's nothing like determining the value of a sport like the marketplace like what happens or how its credit is actually rating what is the cost of a league or a team to borrow that's the free market what has happened to baseball's credit rating over the last several years Listen, it's been it's been uh, incredibly stable. Uh, we've we've had a stable rating on it. Uh, it's been at the same rating for a very long time. An A rating, very strong, continues to be very um, you know valuable from an investor standpoint. Um, strong demand for the paper. Um, you know, largely insurance companies and banks going after this paper, and it continues to be you know something that they see value in. Um, you know, the league, as you think about other industries that took a downturn. 
you know, during the economic recession, baseball continued, uh, you know, some small uh, adjustments on the attendance levels, but continues to be a very valuable property. Great insight today. Thanks so much for coming on the Forbes Sports Money podcast. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of Forbes Sports Money. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or question, please email us at sportsmoney at podcastone.com. That's O-N-E dot com. Hey, everybody, it's Shaq. Have you had a chance to check out the number one podcast on Podcast One? That's right, the big podcast with Shaq. Me and my co-hosts, John Kincaid and Rob Jenners, we have a blast with way more than just sports. We have the biggest guests from entertainment to the NBA. Dwight, let me give you some championship advice. Let it fuel you, but never let it piss you off. Because you are a sensitive baby. I am. I think all big guys. I know you are. The big podcast with Shaq. With a new episode every Monday at PodcastOne.com. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. It's peak season for asparagus, which pairs perfectly with a light and crisp rosé. Mini bottles of champagne and sparkling wines are perfect for adult Easter baskets. And they're really cute, too. My perfect brunch? Belgian waffles with extra whipped cream and a holiday pour of your sweetest rosé. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower... It does not appear to be following, following the rule of law is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.